Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. What kind of things do we do to cover our sin? It all starts with deception. We act like it's not wrong and we act like we didn't do it and we try to cover it up. And if it takes a lie to cover it up, we'll, we'll do it because it would be worse if people found out, wouldn't it? Have you ever seen those movies where things go from bad to worse for the character? It usually stems from a misunderstanding or lie that soon spirals out of control. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Favares is walking us through an Old Testament sequence of events which plays out much like one of these movies. It's the story of David and Bathsheba, and we're focusing on the period of time between their sin and eventual restoration. Well, here's Pastor Mike with How to Avoid a Life of Hypocrisy. over to Psalm 32 and let me show you the descriptive terms that David uses to describe his feelings when he sins and doesn't immediately confess his sin. Do you want to know what happens? As though we need to explain it to you. In this period between committing sin and confessing sin, one thing that happens is I feel the heavy weight of guilt. Notice the poetic way in which it's described in verse 3 of Psalm 32. The first four words describe the fact that David is in the interval between committing sin and confessing sin. He says, when I kept silent. What's he talking about? I've committed a sin, but I'm not willing to talk about it. I don't want to talk to God about it. I don't want to talk to Uriah about it. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I just want to pretend it didn't happen. And when we pretend it didn't happen and we're not willing to face it, the text says something about David's life that is perhaps true about your life and mine in the midst of this interval. The text says that David's bones wasted away. Now, this is not a physiological description. This is an emotional description. This is the, the spirit of a man who knows the right thing to do and has just done the wrong thing and feels terrible guilt about it. And the Bible says that he felt as though his bones were wasting away through his groaning all day long. Do you notice how when we sin and cross a line, it just is back to haunt us all day long? And the text says in verse 4 that day and night, there was no relief. His hand, God's hand, was heavy upon David. His strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It was as though he was out in the desert walking through some wasteland with the sun beating down on his head and he felt like he had no energy to do anything. Have you been in that interval between sin and confession? Perhaps you're in that interval now and you call it a lot of things. Oh, I'm a bit depressed. I'm in a down season. I'm kind of in a valley. I'm in a desert. Whatever you want to call it, perhaps you're experiencing this thing that is triggered by an inborn software program that God has designed for everybody's life. It's called our conscience. And if you know anything about the Bible, you should know that the conscience is held on a, on a pedestal and it's supposed to be pampered in the life of the Christian. And the Christian should be very careful to pay attention to one's conscience because the conscience is a God-given gauge to let us know when we're doing wrong. 
It's like the old uh, comedy sketch with the doctor where the patient comes in and says, hey doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, don't do that. <laughs> well, that works. And you know, that's how it ought to work with your conscience. If that business deal gives you a pang of guilt, then it's probably not the right thing to do. If in your life that relationship with that person gives you that pang of guilt from your conscience, then you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't continue in it. If that friend, if that alliance, if that activity, if that class, if that association, if that contract gives you that feeling, if the way you relate to that person, if it gives you that feeling of guilt and it makes you feel bad, then it's probably because you're being bad and God wants you to confess it. God is looking for confession. And the conscience is a great gauge. And back, if you look in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, you don't see it in the text written for us, but you know it's true. If she's back home and David's left in the loneliness of his palace, putting his robes back on and sitting on the edge of his bed, you know he's reeling with guilt. You've got to know that. He was in tune with God's law. Now, in verse number 5, you're going to see that she gives him the dreaded news that she is pregnant. Now, gals, how, how long does it take to figure that out? There is a period of time that David is in this state between committing sin and confessing sin, and he's having to wrestle each night with his conscience. But he's not paying attention to his conscience. He's not responding to his conscience. Let me say this if you're taking notes this morning. The first thing you and I have to do if we're not going to fall into this trap of hypocrisy, if we're not going to be ensnared in this place and have it be prolonged in our lives, number one, we need to pay attention to our conscience. It needs to be something I regularly look at and think, what is my conscience doing today? Do I have a clean conscience? If you're taking notes, you may want to jot down a few references. One is Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Paul gives us the, the pattern, the standard for every Christian. He says, I always strive to keep my conscience clear. And the original text is so telling. To keep it undamaged, to keep it undefiled, to keep it from stumbling. Literally is what the text says. I don't, I don't want my conscience to, to get beat up. I don't want it to be marred. I don't want it to, to be in any way defiled. Or how about when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He tells him to fight the good fight, and then he defines it. He says the good fight is to hold on to the faith and to hold on to a good conscience. Don't, don't let your conscience get beat up. If your conscience tells you you've sinned, then respond to it. Treat it with great respect. But you know, every time we say to our conscience, no, I'm not listening to that. Every time we stuff those feelings of guilt down and say, no, I don't feel that I'm really guilty in that area. And we argue with it and we discuss it and we debate it within ourselves and we tell our conscience, no, 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 shut up. It's not that bad. We are defiling. We are causing our conscience to become, as Titus puts it, defiled. Or even a better passage, if you still are taking notes on this topic, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uses a very interesting word. It says that some people have become corrupted because their minds and their 
consciences have been seared. The, the word is, is to, to become calloused or to have scarring material on it. And it becomes so seared or calloused that it's not even sensitive anymore to wrong. That's why you can see the interviews of these guys on death row or in prison talk about their crimes and we're all aghast at their comments because they seem to have no guilt. They seem to have no perception of the wrong that they've done. Some of them, you've seen these interviews, right? You think, how can that happen? That doesn't happen overnight. Barring some mental, uh, the chemical disorder in the brain, barring that, the average person becomes a hardened criminal through a series of continual arguments with their conscience. All they do is keep, keep telling their conscience, that no, 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 don't give me that feeling. I don't want to hear it. I'm not really wrong. It's not that bad. I don't need to confess this. I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong here. And the more we do that to our conscience, the more we put calluses on it. And the more we put calluses on it, the more we don't even feel when we do wrong. And so the Bible says, keep a clear conscience. Keep an undefiled conscience. Hold on. Fight that good fight to, to, to grab onto a good conscience. And you know how we do that? We pay attention to it. We don't argue with it. Do you, do you know why most of us feel guilty when, when we feel guilty? Do you know why we feel guilty? Because we are. <laughs> it's that simple. You feel guilty 99 times out of 100 when you are guilty. Oh, I know there are some exceptions. But most of the time when you feel that pang of guilt, it's because you're guilty. You've done something that God is not pleased with. So the response ought to be, and, and we would hope to God that that would be David's response here, but it's not to respond to it, pay attention to it, listen, oh my goodness, I feel bad, I've done something wrong. I need to confess it. I need to bring Uriah back from the battle and I, I need to beg his forgiveness in his front living room and say, I, I'm sorry, I've done wrong. But none of that takes place. As a matter of fact, in verse five, if you're looking at it, when he gets word that she's pregnant, the text says he does send out word to Joab, the commander of the army, and he says, bring me Uriah the Hittite. But instead of coming and confessing his sin to Uriah, when Uriah shows up, look at it, verse 7, David asked him, hey, how's the soccer team this year, you know? Really enjoying those, uh, those, those Girl Scout cookies? Look at the hypocrisy here. Hey, how's the war going out there? How are the soldiers doing? Are you doing okay? How's everybody? How's Joab? Give me some information. Oh, thanks for the report. Oh, look at the time. It's getting late. Verse 8. David says to Uriah, ah, I appreciate you coming down all the way from the battle. Go down to your house and, and, and get, get yourself a shower. Clean up. Wash up your feet. Go, just, you know, we'll get you back there to the, to the front lines later. And then look at the hypocrisy. Verse 8. So Uriah left the palace. And here comes the gift basket from the king, right? Here's a little gift package, little Martinelli's in there, a couple, you know, uh, Israeli bananas and some oranges. Hey, have a nice night. A couple champagne glasses there. Have, have, a, have a wonderful night. Of course, his strategy, though it's not spelled out, is obvious, isn't it? If Uriah is intimate with his wife, approximately nine months later, they'll have a baby. Uriah will think it's his. No one needs to know. Life goes on. 
Oh, I feel guilty in my conscience, but I've stuffed that back and I haven't repented. I haven't come clean. I haven't admitted it. Instead, now I'm worried about what people are going to think. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make sure this never comes out. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get Uriah to be intimate with his wife. But look at this. Wouldn't you know it? Verse 9. You happen to bring back the most sensitive man of integrity from the battle. Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants, and he didn't go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. He asked, what's wrong with you, man? Are you crazy? Haven't you come in from a long distance? Why don't you go home? Have a nice meal. Hang out with your wife for the night. Uriah says, uh, verse 11, hey, man, I, I can't do that. You got the Ark of the Covenant out there. You got the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Judah, all staying in tents. My master Joab, my Lord's men, they're all camped out in the open field. My goodness, there's a war going on. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, O king, I couldn't do such a thing. You can see David just, oh. You couldn't do such a thing. Well, that's what I've been doing. Not only that, I've been having sex with your wife. I've skipped out on my responsibility. Yeah, the ark's out in the field. I'm here walking around on the roof of my palace watching my neighbor's wife bathe and having her over for dinner. Yeah. Imagine the guilt at that point skyrocketed. But instead of responding to guilt, he's still concerned about his reputation. And David said, fine, phase two, verse 12. Hey, just stay one more night. You know, stay another day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And as David paced and tapped his foot on the floor in the king's palace, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll give us another shot. I'll call him into the palace. We'll have a big banquet. And the text says, David, look at it, middle of verse 13, made him drunk. Do you understand the Israelites' relationship to alcohol was a very strict one? It has always been in the scripture a prohibition against strong drink, drink that can make you intoxicated. To be inebriated or to have your senses dulled was something you did for someone on their deathbed. You did not do that for the normal person. As a matter of fact, it was a terrible sin in the Israelite community. No one would think of getting drunk, particularly in the king's palace. And David, the bastion of righteousness and God's high standards as it relates to mental clarity and the possible effects of strong drink and alcohol, of course, no one would think that the king would make anybody drunk. But see, that's what happens to hypocrites when they're so concerned about their reputation. They do whatever it takes to cover up their sin in the minds of people. And so David, in the process, takes his standard in terms of alcohol and drunkenness and throws it out the window. And he uses this as a tool, another sin here. Not only is he now being deceptive, now he's breaking his own standards and principles of living to try and get Uriah drunk so perhaps he might go home and be intimate with his wife and they might all think that this baby that's coming is not David's but perhaps they would be fooled into thinking it's Uriah's but verse 13 bottom of the verse in the evening Uriah even in his drunken state went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants he did not go home David said I've had it in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And he wrote in it, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fierce. Then withdraw and just, you know, happen to not tell Uriah and try and get him killed by the enemy. Make it look like an accident. Sticks it in the hand of his faithful messenger and Uriah carries his own death sentence back to the commander of the army. 
And this trustworthy servant is about to be killed secondhand by David. And not only that, as Joab carries out the command, there's no clean way to get rid of him. The Bible says that a number of the king's men died in that battle because of a purposeful lack of wisdom and intelligence in a battle. And David had commanded Joab to put him next to the wall and then withdraw without telling these guys. Uriah is killed and so, is a bun so are a bunch of other men. And so there was not just one widow that was going to mourn the loss of their husband. There were several in Israel who cried that night when the messenger ran in and said, I'm sorry to inform you that these men have just died. David has gone from deception to violating standards as it relates to alcohol to now he's having men killed in a battle and doing it strategically and purposefully. What kind of things do we do to cover our sin? It all starts with deception. We act like it's not wrong and we act like we didn't do it and we try to cover it up. And if it takes a lie to cover it up, we'll, we'll do it because it would be worse if people found out, wouldn't it? Be worse if people found out. Be worse if people found out. Here's my question for you. David is trying to cover this. It's obvious. The bulk of this chapter from verse 5 to verse 27, he's trying to cover his sin. But my question for you is, who is he hiding it from? Isn't this the guy that wrote Psalm 139? Do you remember that psalm? He says, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I put, make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If, if, I, if I try to cover myself in darkness and say that the darkness will, will hide me, oh, it's not going to hide me. The darkness is like, is like light to you, and I can't hide. There's nothing I can do that I can hide from you. I just can't. But of course, when David and Bathsheba walked into the king's bedroom, I'm sure they closed the door behind them and carefully slipped the latch into the door jamb. I'm sure that David got up and took the shutters of the king's bedroom and closed them, of course, because you don't want to commit adultery and have people see it. Perhaps even they took the, the drapery on this giant bed in the king's palace and, and closed it up in case a servant might, might come in. Or there might. So we want to keep this private. But this was the guy who had written with such clarity the reality that God sees everything. Who's he hiding this from? It's interesting that in the Psalms, as Solomon writes about the foolishness of adultery, he ends one of his long and very uh, compelling cases against adultery in chapter 5 with these words in verse 21 of Proverbs. He says, For a man's ways are in full view of Yahweh, and Yahweh examines all of his paths. Well, David's trying to cover this up, but uh, tell me, who had a front row seat? to this act of adultery. Who knew and saw every detail, looked into the, the very bedroom of the king to watch what was happening? Who recorded every thought that took place in the mind of David as he walked around on the roof of the palace? Who was there noting carefully all of that? Of course, God was. So there's really, unless we think he's, he's gone crazy or become incredibly forgetful, we know that in verses 5 all the way to the end of, of 27, almost to the end of 27, we know he's not trying to hide this from God. He's simply trying to hide this from people because he's greatly concerned about his reputation. What if people found out? Well, notice his great success. After the men are killed, David says with another speech dripping with hypocrisy, verse 25, he says, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. 
I mean, the sword devours one as well as another. Just press the attack against the city and destroy it. Would you, would you say that kind of thing to Joab and just let him know that he shouldn't feel too bad about a few of these Israeli soldiers dying? I mean, it's a sad thing and all, but, but you know, that's what battle's about. Sometimes you'll lose a few men. Hypocrite. Covering your sin. Trying to maintain your integrity. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of her mourning and after it was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him that illegitimate child. Now I know the conscience was still reeling, but in a sense it had blown over. And David could throw his sandals up on his desk in the administrative office of the royal palace and say, I'm glad that's done. I mean, we've, we've kept this a, a controlled situation, and, and, and basically the average guy on the street still thinks that I'm a pretty good king, and you know, all the people around me, and most of the, the soldiers, they, they think I'm so concerned and, and caring, and I've encouraged the troops, and, and I've I, I still got a good reputation. I'm glad we've succeeded in maintaining that. Do you know that what drives us to stay in the state of hypocrisy is our great concern for our reputation? Not in the eyes of God. Of course, it's in the eyes of men because God sees every sin we've ever committed. So if we're not going to remain very long in this state of hypocrisy, put it this way if you're taking notes, number two, you and I need to care less. And for most of us, it's much less. We need to care less about our reputation. Because your precious reputation, let me just tell you, has very little to do with who you really are. You understand that, don't you? Because most of us here have a reputation that far exceeds the reality of who we really are. And when it comes down to it, I will stand before God one day completely naked in the throne room of God and He will assess my life according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and it'll be one-on-one -on -one, and there'll be no jury trials and they're not going to call any character witnesses in and they're not going to say to you people at church, kind of, tell me, tell me what kind of guy was Pastor Mike? God will have none of that. He's going to look at my life and one-on-one, -on -one, he will make me give an account for everything I've done. Just me and God. And then it'll be your turn. And you know what? Our precious reputations won't matter a bit. Convicting words from our Bible teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point in a message called How to Avoid a Life of Hypocrisy. For more teaching on this important subject or to share this message with a friend, visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download the free Focal Point app for convenient listening on the go. You know, we work hard to make Pastor Mike's teaching available for you in as many formats as we can, but none of it is possible without the generous donations of your fellow listeners. Now, if you've given to support this ministry in the past, we appreciate you. This month, we're featuring a book that will help you understand God's grace in an even deeper way. It's called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. If you're struggling with your faith, or if you know someone who wants to understand God's grace better, then this will be a helpful and reliable guide. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks for your support today. To make a donation, call us at 888-320-5885, or you can give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
And remember to ask for the book Olive Grace when you send your donation. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. Now, even if you can't give today, we still want to hear from you. And when you let us know that you're listening, we'll send you a free booklet about the attributes of God. Request the booklet when you call 888-320-5885 or find it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewey, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue learning how to avoid a life of hypocrisy right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.